HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Worldwide Soba. Are you interested in making your own Japanese noodles or buying premium handmade soba, udon, or ramen noodles? Learn more at worldwide-soba.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Akiko Katema, food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We, hear, uh, we see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Craig Koketsu, who is a third-generation Japanese-American and chef partner at Quality Branded, which owns multiple popular restaurants in New York City, including Quality Meats, Quality Italian, uh, Smith & Walensky, and Park Avenue. And traditional Japanese cuisine has become very popular in the U.S., but we tend to overlook the history of Japanese-Americans. So today we'll discuss uh, cultural assimilation of Japanese-Americans in, in the U.S. Uh, from the point of uh, culinary um, issues and how Craig's uh, experience with Japanese-Americans from uh, California has influenced his cooking style and much, much more. But quickly before we start, Japan Eats is available on Heritage Radio Network website as well as on iTunes and Stitcher's podcasts. So please go to iTunes or Stitcher and sh- uh, subscribe to Japan Eats and please write a review on iTunes or Stitcher. We appreciate your feedback. Also, if you have any ideas about topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. You can email us at japaneats at heritageradionetwork.org or akikokatayama.com. Now, let's start our conversation with Craig Koketsu. Hi, Craig. Welcome to Japan Eats. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, so, uh, you are a third-generation uh, Japanese-American. So, where did you grow up? Uh, <coughs> sorry. I, I grew up in uh, San Jose, California, which is essentially an 
an hour south of San Francisco mm-hmm. in the Bay Area. I, people say that's the heavenly place. Yeah, it's, it's really, uh, when I was growing up, it was still a lot of orchards. Um, mm. it was a, it's a really fertile valley. Um, and so they were growing like tons of fruit, uh, strawberries, corn. Mm. And there were, you know, when I was a kid, there were still roadside stands where you can, you know, right. pull up and get a crate of strawberries and <laughs> take them home and wash them. And just like, you know, we would just <laughs> and gorge ourselves on, on mm, fresh fruit. And it's, yeah, it's really delicious. So maybe that inspired you to be mm. a, become a chef. Maybe. It was definitely a, a lasting food memory for me mm. um, because, uh, I mean, on the East Coast here, TriStar, TriStar strawberries are really delicious, but they're they're not quite the same as the taste memory that I have of strawberries as a kid. Mm. You know, they were just... The, the texture and the juiciness and they were really big mm. but they also had this really beautiful aroma and fragrance all at the same time right. one of my the <laughs> one of the memories I had when I when I first met my my wife my girlfriend mm. um, I went over to her house and she also lived in in San Jose and her mother had just gotten this whole big crate of strawberries and she washed them and you know took the took the stem out and they were all perfect and they were in this bowl in this fridge mm. and we took that whole bowl and we just sat and we were talking and we ate the whole bowl <laughs> of strawberries and it's still like one of my best memories wow so, yeah. yeah i'm sure you impressed your her, her mother <laughs> <laughs> impressed or upset yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay just remind um, reminded me about you know um michino eki in Japan, it's a basically local farmers market. It started to pop up throughout the country, and it's um, generally it's like a, a collection of local farms. Right. And then I think it's relatively new. So if you travel uh, throughout Japan, you can try to find the Michinoeki and the station near stations, or you know all those highway drives. And then I think they really help you. To create that kind of taste memory. Yeah, yeah. Those those little things really stick with you for a long time. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so when you grew up, uh, what was your perception about your identity? More Japanese, or American? Uh, it was certainly more American. I was very aware that I was Japanese. You know, um, <clears throat> most of my friends were Caucasian growing up, so mm. it was you know visually apparent that I was different. Um, from most of my friends, uh, and certainly the culturally, uh, we were very Americanized. Mm-hmm. My family, uh, I grew up in a family of six kids wow. and so we were the typical American family. Mm-hmm. We, we just happened to be Japanese, right. but, but the cultural aspect of Japan was something that, and, uh, was something that my mom really um, strive to uh, to educate people about, and so in when I was a kid, she was instrumental in starting a Japanese American summer school oh, wow. uh, in San Jose called Suzume no Gakko, mm. and um, which became sort of a model for a lot of Japanese American summer schools, uh, cultural summer schools throughout the country. Mm. Um, and she was one of the founders, and then she was also one of the founders of uh, Nikkei Matsuri. Which mm-hmm. was the the springtime mm-hmm. festival in in downtown San Jose, which is one of the only Japan towns in uh, in the United States. Really, right. uh, I think there's one in San Francisco, one in L.A., 
and one in San Jose in California. Mm. So, so she had yeah. some uh, kind of concerns that you or, you know, the whole community may not have enough experience with Japanese culture? I think so. I think she wanted us to learn more about it and be proud of it. And Mm -hmm. so that was certainly something that, for me, I identified with. And that was a big part of, even though I was an American kid, Mm -hmm. it was a big part of my identity. Right. I think uh, even nowadays, a lot of um, uh, Japanese communities have weekend schools to teach. Right, right. right. Yeah, yeah, I think I, it's more for probably more for exams when they just in case they go back to Japan and take exactly. I would have I failed miserably on all that <laughs> <laughs> Japanese class and everything. Oh man, it was just so hard. I I had no knack for the language. <laughs> like, why am I doing this? Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah, but since you are the third generation, um, I'm interested in your grandparents uh, who came from Japan. So may I ask one and why they your grandparents came to the states? So my my grandparents well. My, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, was actually born in the United States, and then she went back to Japan, and then she came back to the United States. Mm. Um, my other three grandparents were all born in Japan and uh, immigrated to the United States, um, I, you know, in the early 1900s. Mm. Uh, um, and, you know, I think like many immigrants, they, they came here for more opportunity and a better life. Mm. And... Um, my, the, they settled in California ultimately, and and as with many Japanese uh, immigrants in California, they you know farming was a big part of mm. of of what California was then and still is, and um, so they you know they took up jobs in farming. Um, they also my I just found out that my my maternal grandfather and grandmother had a restaurant shortly oh so, really yeah <laughs> i didn't re- i didn't realize that but um they actually cooked uh and my 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 grandmother was always a really amazing cook mm. and she could whip things up and the kitchen was always clean and organized and she, it it looked effortless and i didn't realize that that sort of came from her experience as as sort of a professional cook where she had to cook for a lot of people and mm. and she was a young at, at the she was actually uh, uh before she was married she was responsible for cooking for a lot of like uh uh laborers oh, and, okay and at the farm yeah and wow so it was pretty interesting to know that that was sort of you know part of who I was mm. and maybe maybe one of the reasons I was drawn to this industry yeah. right DNA yeah, yeah. <laughs> right um but assuming she was cooking Japanese cuisine, right? Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Right, and just the farm, fresh farm produce, and then cooking Japanese cuisine. It's beautiful. There's nothing better. My my dad's parents had a garden. <clears throat> Actually, both my grandparents always had a garden. Mm. And so some of the best memories were of them just, you know, during the summer pulling out zucchini, pulling out cucumbers and tomatoes from the garden and making whipping something up mm. very simply and just eating that fresh produce from their from the garden. Right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And uh, well, by the way, uh, your last name Kokets is so unique that I looked up, and then the name uh, originated in around 10th century, and your ancestor most likely worked for one of the legendary uh, shoguns, Minamoto no Yoshie. <laughs> yeah. So we've got a noble family. That's that's yeah. Related. It's interesting. Yeah. I I know that our 
our name is very uncommon. Mm-hmm. It's very uncommon in Japan, and it's even less so you right. know, here. And I, I always think that if there's a koketsu somewhere in the world, we must be related, you know, totally. s- somehow. You right. know, so. and it's mainly from Gifu Prefecture. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, and then the spelling of koketsu is I can't even spell it. It's too oh, complicated. I, ha- <laughs> I have it. I I carry around a little card. My my mother's father was a was a very um, talented calligraphist. Mm. And so he would do the Japanese calligraphy, and he spelled out koketsu for me so I could show it to people wow. and sh- show how it's written, and most people can't even read it. You know? <laughs> I don't think <laughs> I could. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. So, um, the, right, so your grandparents came here. So, um, you know, the experience of becoming a citizen or, you know, resident here, do you know the experience, how it was like? I think, you know, pre-World War II, there was a lot of opportunity, and they were able to, you know, work their way mm-hmm. um, up and, uh, you know, buy land, and, and they had farms, mm-hmm. and uh, my, my dad's family, my dad's parents, you know, had a lot of land in Southern California. Okay. And um, they, were, they were doing well, I mm-hmm. think, before the war, and... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, working hard on the land, but it was something that, that you know, that they had come to the United States for was the opportunity and the, mm. the ability to, to do that. Right. Um, and and so I think, yeah, I, I think pre-war, pre-war they, they did very well. Mm. Yeah. Okay. But I'm wondering, I'm sure that, you know, Japanese food, like your grandmother cooked Japanese cuisine, right? So were there any easy pantry items of Japanese pantry items that back then? I'm sure they have to make themselves or something like that. Yeah, I, I mean, my, I remember a lot of pickles, mm. you know. Um, right. There's a lot of Japanese pickling, you know, just salt and, you know, and, right. and pressing them and then letting them just sort of, uh, just just uh, pickle in their own, in the juices that, that, you know, accumulated in there. And right. then she would jar them up and we'd have them for, you know, for the, the up, you know, the following year. Mm. Um, so there was a lot of stuff like that. There was, you know, your common Japanese condiments, soy sauce, mm-hmm. miso, and things like that. Right. Um, so she really maintained that kind of traditional style of Japanese cuisine? Yeah, I think so. It was very simple cooking. Mm. It was not, like, elaborate um, it's not kaiseki. <laughs> no, it wasn't kaiseki. But it was seasonal. You know, it was cooking with what they had in the seasons and, and preserving things for, the for you know, mm. the, the seasons where there wasn't anything. Right. Okay. So, um, well, but when we talk about Japanese-Americans in the States, uh, I think we should touch on the influence of the internment camps during the World War II. So I assume your grandparents went to... Uh, camps? Yeah, actually, my my grandparents and my my mom and dad were all interned when they my mom and dad were you know quite young at that point, mm. um, but their families were all interned during World War II, mm. um, and it was something exceptional for the Japanese in on the west coast of of the United States, mm. uh, you know, because it, the internment didn't really um, happen outside of that area, even in Hawaii. Where, uh, where the attack happened, mm. um, they didn't intern the, the Japanese Americans there, or in the Midwest, or on the East Coast. So mm. it was something that was very, 
specific to to mm. the West Coast Japanese American right. experience because they're more um, wealthier, maybe more successful. Um, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> ostensibly it was it was deemed military necessity by you know by the the U.S. government, mm. and uh, because they thought there was an immediate threat to the national security. Mm. Um, but you know, what actually happened was yeah. Uh, my grandparents lost everything, basically. Their land, they sort of had to mm. <clears throat> forfeit it. Um, it wasn't that the government necessarily took the land. It's just that they they were, you know, basically being imprisoned. Mm. And they had to give up their land or right. sell it. Mm. And they had no choice. And at that point, you know, they were selling it to people that knew that they had no other buyers. So, so right. you know, they literally were giving their land away mm. and uh yeah that was a shame right yeah. yeah i didn't know too much about what happened um but then i looked up and then there was an article about uh, one of the camps in oregon so this is funny that despite their illegitimate illegitimate um persecution and the harsh cramped and sanitary conditions of the camps residents tried to reconstruct their lives um behind the uh, uh, barbed wire, barbed wire fences, and guard, guarded towers. And at that place, the Mini Doka, uh, people grew up, grew flowers in the dry soil, and formed musical groups. Published a newspaper, played on uh, sports teams, developed crafts, and uh, seized opportunities to leave their confinement. Yeah, I think I think they reacted very well to mm. to a negative situation and really made the best of it. And I know my parents because of the age that they were when they were interned, mm-hmm. it was sort of a opportunity for them to, you know, they got to play, you know, all their friends were sort of <laughs> close, you know, in, in barracks uh, that were very close. And, and it was a sort of a fun environment for a lot of young kids. Mm. Um, uh, and, and the parents really tried to do as much as they could with what they had. You know, I, I can't remember. We, they were talking about different recipes that they were able to make with the food that they were given, Mm. you know, like powdered milk and stuff like that, you know, that was, but, um, to this day, my dad cannot drink powdered milk. It makes him gag because it reminds me, (laughs) reminds Mm. him of of what they had in camp. But, but yeah, I think overall it was very, you know, they, they made a very positive, uh, situation out of, Mm. out of, uh, something that, that might not have been. Right. Otherwise, that actually reminded me of uh, you know 2011 uh, tsunami, right? And uh, in uh, all those uh, the all those crazy um, the shelters, right. They exactly. had organized, you know, systems to keep maintaining it clean and equal. So yeah, I I actually went um, to uh, Tohoku mm. uh, oh, wow. with a group of chefs led by uh, Daniel Balu mm. after oh. after the earthquake and tsunami and we went there and we fed over 2,000 people and it was amazing because all these people were displaced and they gathered at this what was this rugby field basically that has this track around it Mm. and we set up on one side of the field we set up basically these tents and they just in this very organized Mm. fashion they just all sort of came through the tents and got all the food and nobody was like pushing and it was just so organized and so respectful and it was, it was pretty amazing to see mm, yeah. that's what uh, Japanese people are good at yeah. <laughs> right um, yeah and it's interesting that you said that you know actual camp condition maybe bonded Japanese people more closely to each other I think so 
I think so. It was, it's, you know, it's all, <laughs> it's a lot of people that are similar to you, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, similar culturally. And so it was a, it was a time where everybody could, you know, mm. in very close proximity, physical right. proximity. So, and, and culturally, probably they reinforced awareness of Japanese yeah. culture, especially for children. I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. But then the unique thing that happened, I think, post camps was, uh, you know, and post war mm-hmm. uh, was this sort of assimilation of the Japanese Americans into back into, you know, the American culture, mm-hmm. and and. You know, it was it was hard because I think for a lot of them they felt that they were identified as outsiders, and mm. that's why they were put into camp. So after after the war was over, it was really more of a an effort to to have people identify you as an American, right? You know, mm. um, and so a lot of that sort of had an effect on the Japanese, specifically Japanese-American on the, Japanese-Americans on the West Coast. Mm. So do you know uh, something changed, um, say, regarding what grandparents did? Like, Yeah, I, I think it was just, you know, I think maybe, largely I think the, the language was lost. Mm. <laughs> you know, obviously okay. it was lost on me because, you know, my, my parents didn't speak Japanese to me mm. and um, they barely speak Japanese now. Okay. So, you know, when they went back to schools and everything, they really lost that, mm. that part. And when you lose the language, you, that's a big part right. of, of the culture, right? Mm. So, um, so and, and then it affected food, too. You know, oh, okay. I think a lot of American products made, found their way into Japanese cooking. And, and as, you know, as the generations went on, mm. you know, um, from like, you know, second to third and third to fourth, you know, the, the connection to the real authentic Japanese cooking was sort of filtered through, mm. <laughs> you know, all these American products. And, right. um, and so that's sort of my Japanese-American experience. Mm. So that's a good segue. So, um, so when you grew up, you did you eat a lot of Japanese food or not, not so, so much? Yeah, I mean, we ate what we thought was Japanese food. But then, <laughs> <laughs> then and, you know, when I went to Japan, I realized, wow, that, that is not, you know, that's not what what we ate was not a real representation of 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 japanese food it was certainly japanese flavors mm-hmm. um but it was you know there was it was definitely put through several filters right <laughs> you know interesting yeah. because you now nowadays you see more real japanese than yeah ever. definitely definitely there's a you know there's a there's a return to this authenticity of you know regional cuisine wherever it may be mm-hmm. you know and and so you know i think it's it's ironic, but I'm Japanese American. I think people think that I know about Japanese flavors, and but there's so many you know Caucasian chefs out there that have actually spent time and worked in Japan and mm. have have to you know really have an understanding of Japanese cuisine right. you know, much 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 deeper than mine. So. Mm. Interesting, yeah. right? <laughs> but but I think I think you're kind of perception of being Japanese is stronger than probably more than Japanese in Japan. But, uh, wait, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> yeah, you know, like, you know, Japanese... I, I grew up in Japan, right? right? I didn't even question my identity. Like, okay, yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, DNA is so like right. really Japanese. But if you are always compared to other, you know, people... Right. Or any other ethnicity, right? You become more aware 
Yes. Yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah. I mean, when you're surrounded by people that are like you, you don't really realize that there's any difference Right. You know, or you're you're different in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and your mother's um, efforts to educate you—that kind of thing—is more. And I think, regardless of, you can just go to Japan. You can learn uh, traditional cuisine, but right. uh, in your mind, I think it's very much more deeper rooted. Yes. Yeah. I guess right. so. Mm-hmm. It was sort of interesting the first time when I went to Japan. Uh, that you know, I was surrounded by people that that looked like me mm, and that was the right. first time in my life so that was sort of odd and comforting at the same time right yeah. <laughs> if you go to Harajuku like everybody <laughs> like here's black right okay so um, yeah but uh, how did you get into cooking by the way um jeez I I started this goes back to when I was a kid but I I always loved um, food I was loved being in the kitchen and being the youngest of six, my parents were really sort of lax about, you know, me being in the kitchen, <laughs> standing on a chair at the stove and mm. cooking and, and playing around and baking. That's really how it started. Mm. And your mother cooked a non-Japanese food, mainly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah. Um, and she was a, she's a really good cook. And, and so we, we grew up with real food, mm. you know, and, and tasting real food, which was, which was nice. And so I think... That's really instrumental in, in in your development as a as a cook mm. is having that sort of background of, of real cooking, right. you know, even as simple as it may be, you know. Right. Well, some people say my mother never cooked, so we decided to become a chef. But right, and, and that that also happens right. out of necessity. <laughs> you got to feed yourself, or else you know. So yeah. Right. So, um, but then, how did you train yourself to be a professional chef? So I um, <clears throat> I was in college, and it was. At that point, when, when I realized that I really wanted to pursue cooking, mm-hmm. um, and um, so I, I was working in a produce market in in North Oakland, California, mm-hmm. and wow. it, we had great produce. But a lot of chefs would come through, right. and I learned a lot about produce there. And I was able to actually teach a lot of the chefs about what, oh, wow. what the produce was and how it tasted, and you know and. It, I developed a rapport with a lot of these people, and eventually I went to work with with uh, one of the chefs, and uh-huh. and that's I sort of apprenticed, and and you know I thought it was great because I was learning, even though I was making like I don't know, you know, at that time it was like four or five bucks an hour or something <laughs> crazy, right. but I was like at least I'm I'm getting paid for it, and I'm not having to pay for culinary school, mm. you know, and I'm learning on the job, so. And that's really what it was. I, you know, I started washing dishes and worked my way up through all the stations in the kitchen. Mm. And so that was uh, the Martha. Yeah, that was at that restaurant called Martha's mm-hmm. um, in Campbell, California. Mm. And the chef was his name was Steve Chan, and he was Chinese American, um, but he uh, he actually worked for his his chef was this gentleman named Otto Summerhalder who mm. had come up through this sort of classical brigade system. So his schooling and his experience was very, very classically French. Interesting. And so that was sort of was, you know, that that sort of was filtered down to me. And mm. I sort of got his experience and this sort of classical French training, right. you know, at this at this, you know, restaurant, small restaurant in, in Campbell, California. Mm. And then, well, it makes sense that now you moved on to uh, the restaurant at the Jeremiah. Towers, yeah, yeah, it's a legendary yeah, Jeremiah Tower and and stars. Uh, he was opening um, a, 
another location of stars in Palo Alto, and that's when I I went to work there, and it was that was an amazing experience also. Um, and I got to work with two really amazing chefs there. Well, but you know, I'm curious though because oh, yeah. General Ita just uh, there's a, his documentary just came out, yeah. right? And uh, Jeremy Jeremy Tower, the last magnificent. Exactly. And I haven't yeah. watched it yet, I, but I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. But I can imagine because um, he would he he was pretty magnificent. He would <laughs> he would stand on the line with a glass of champagne and he would expedite tickets, you know, and he'd be sipping champagne and just so elegant. But you know what? I hope you do that too. Now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, every chance I get. Um, he was really he was a really sort of. Uh, natural chef and he had he had a natural way and natural leadership and he's a very kind person uh I, and at least in my experience you know um there was an issue where i didn't get paid initially mm. you know um for like the first three weeks or something and so i i, I didn't make a big deal of it i knew i was going to get paid eventually but mm. but um i i went to like the the secretary and apparently it ran up the chain to him and he like came into the walk-in one day when i was like you know, frantically searching for all these ingredients. And he's like, hey, did you, you know, was everything okay with your check? Uh, or did you get paid? And I, and I thought that was really amazing that a chef, you know, being responsible for as much mm. as he was actually cared about one singular employee, you know, right. enough to, you know, to ask them. And I think that's always stuck with me, the importance of, of connecting with your employees mm. like that. Magnificent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And are you going to say that uh, it was the other chefs you? Uh, so after after Jeremiah left, um, we uh, he left for for various reasons. I'm I'm not really quite sure, but but Joyce Goldstein from mm-hmm. Square One took over as as mm. sort of like the consulting chef, and so it was a really great opportunity to learn at the same restaurant um, from two really mm. amazing chefs and they were stylistically they're sort of similar um jeremiah was had a much clearer sense of like this american american cuisine mm. you know he was he was sort of creating his his new american cuisine right. um whereas joyce was really more focused on mediterranean flavors mm. and you know uh through the lens of california produce and and so but both were had amazing palates and you know it was just really about showcasing the food as as simply and cleanly as possible. But, mm. but with sounds Max, like your cuisine, you know. Yeah. It. Yes. I mean, it, it's definitely had an, uh, an influence on on the way I cook. Right. And then you came to New York, and then you sort of worked uh, actually at the same restaurant, Les Minas. Amazing, really great chefs, great cooks, and uh, Christian. Uh, they're, they're very delivery. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So, what was the experience working with them? That was that was probably the most am- amazing experience for me. Um, I, I saw when I was still in California. I saw the New York Times um, food section where it showed. Uh, there was a picture of Greg Coons standing on this open oven door on his Bonet suite, mm. and it talked about this this renovation of his kitchen and all this money that was put into it and I was like that's where I have to work I I'm I absolutely am going to work there so I I applied via uh you know resume I sent in my resume um at that time there wasn't really email so <laughs> so you couldn't really do that um 
But when I came to New York, when I moved to New York, eventually uh, I, I pl- applied when I was in California. Um, and then when I moved to New York, I, I followed up with the resumes that I sent in. Mm-hmm. And Les Benas was the one resume that I, I, I was really adamant about making sure it landed in the hands of Grey Coombs. Mm-hmm. And so um, I ended up sitting outside in this this waiting area outside of uh, the restaurant called Astor Court. Mm-hmm. And his secretary came out and she was this, this German woman, Helga Meyer. And she was very, very imposing and very upset that I was like, <laughs> had the audacity to, to come and try to hand deliver my mm-hmm. resume to Grey Coons. Um, but eventually he came out and he actually, we sat down in the dining room. This was in between lunch and dinner. At least I had the good sense of you know, right. <laughs> coming in between lunch and dinner. <laughs> um, and we, we sat in the dining room and he offered me the job and I started the next day. So, wow. Yeah. And so that was amazing. And Gray had this, had, uh, his cuisine was like, unlike anything I had experienced to that point, it was, you know, a, a combination of, you know, spices and Asian flavors and, mm. and French technique and French ingredients. And it was just, and so beautifully done, so sophisticated. Mm. And I'd never experienced that. Um, and, and things going through so much of a process before they were actually finished. You know, because in California cuisine, it was sort of more about showcasing the, the simplicity and the beauty of the ingredient itself. Mm. Um, um, you know, when I came to New York, it was really about like a technique and, and about, you know, all these little things that you could do to products to make them mm. better and change them in different ways. And that was what Grey Coons really mm. was to me. And it, he opened all those, you know, all those doors to all those different flavors. Right. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, um, so let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll talk more about uh, Craig's idea of Japanese cuisine. Uh, so please stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Worldwide Soba. Are you interested in making your own Japanese noodles or buying premium handmade Japanese noodles, including soba, udon, and ramen? Worldwide Soba is a Japanese restaurant consulting company specializing in Japanese noodles. Its services include teaching noodle and soup making, recipe development, staff training, and increasing restaurant and management efficiency. Worldwide Soba has provided consulting services to the Patina Restaurant Group, Samurai Papa, Brooklyn Ball Factory, and over 40 other restaurants. The next time you slurp a bowl of ramen, udon, or soba in New York, you may be enjoying noodles made by Worldwide Soba. They make them fresh each day and send them out to restaurants across the city. The founder and CEO of Worldwide Soba, Shuichi Kotani, also teaches classes to chefs as well as to the public, which are perfect for parties or corporate events. One of his most popular classes, Soba Making, is held every Sunday afternoon and a tasting is always included. Learn more about Worldwide Soba at worldwide-soba.com. Hi, I'm Kimberly Chow. And I'm Amanda Dow. And we're the hosts of Recommended Reading with Food Book Fair on Heritage Radio Network. Recommended Reading is a show where we talk about what we're reading, listening to, and watching in the world of food media between ourselves as well as with our special guests in and around the food world. 
Support Recommended Reading and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming by going to heritageradionetwork.org and clicking on the beating heart, and you can become a member today. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs Broadcasting Live from Studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is Craig Koketsu, who is a chef partner at Quality Branded, which owns multiple popular restaurants, including Quality Meats, Quality Italian, Smith & Wolinski, and Park Avenue. So, um, so you've been working for Quality Branded, formerly uh, Fourth Wall, for almost 10 years. For more than 10 years, oh, I really? guess. Yeah, oh, I, wow. I, I think, well... Fourth Wall became Fourth Wall in 2007, mm. and I became a partner in 2008. So, I've, I, um, but even b- before that, uh, I, I've been with the company since 2003 when it was Swint oh, wow. Restaurant Group. Ah. And so, it was, at that time, it was still sort of a, pu- a publicly owned company. Mm. And um, so, yeah, I've been there quite some time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Wow. But well, you don't look. You know, we were exactly the same as when we met years ago. I'm Japanese. Come on, Akiko. <laughs> you look exactly the same. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I have to keep eating Japanese food. I don't know. But you don't. So, right. um, so what's your responsibility at uh, Quality Branded? So I'm chef partner. Uh, what that means is I'm responsible for back-of-the-house operations in all of our restaurants. Mm. Um, How many restaurants do <clears throat> we have now? So we have, we have soon-to-be seven in in uh, the city in New York, one in uh, Denver, and one in Miami. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's really it's, yeah. nationwide. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, it's growing. Um, uh, we, you know, we were born out of that smith Wolinsky restaurant group, which had mm. restaurants throughout, throughout the country. Right. Um, but I think in that, we learned and realized the, the, the benefit and value of, of strategically choosing your locations mm. and, and we're really excited about where we are right yeah. okay so uh so what's your uh philosophy of cooking at the company my philosophy of cooking i think for for our restaurants is well we have a lot of big restaurants um mm. and so so there there's <laughs> there's a lot of different philosophies but i think my primary philosophy is i want to give people a, a great experience great restaurant experience and the reason people come to a restaurant is because they want an experience Mm. you know they don't want you to cook food that they could cook for themselves at home so there has to be something interesting about the food you're cooking and it has to be obviously delicious Mm. but in a big restaurant that has to also be very consistent and producible on a large scale and so a lot of that is about creating systems and and Mm. and developing Methods and and standards that right. that will ensure that the customer experience is always as positive as could possibly be, even at a, at a very high level of volume. Mm, um, so it's a little different from Lespina's experience. Yes, yeah, exactly. You mm. know, it's a different it's a different restaurant model. Mm. Um, but we do have smaller restaurants as well. We have uh, Quality Eats in the West Village, and it's only about fifty five seats. Mm. So uh, it was a fun. That was sort of like a fun opening for me because it was so, in so many ways, it was so easy because it was so small. Mm-hmm. But and you could cook a little differently, you know. You can, you, it's a little more free because it's small, and you're not going to get 
you know, you're not going to get completely slammed where mm. you, you know. So it was it was a fun departure from from the larger restaurants like Quality Meats or Quality Italian or mm. Smith Alonsky. You know, these are all like 200 seat restaurants that right. we're talking about. Probably you yeah. can change the menu very often. Yeah, somebody's well, going to panic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we have a good core menu that 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 is signature and remains there for our customers because that's what they love. But then there's also a lot of seasonal changes that we Mm, implement. Right. So based on that whole, you know, situation, do you have some Japanese elements or any philosophy in mind when you do the menu? Yeah, definitely. I think those Japanese flavors find, always find their way into cooking, you know, into my cooking. Um, I think they're just things that, like any any experience that that chefs have during childhood or growing up and and taste experiences or food experiences those things really sort of find their way into mm. into you know what it what becomes your style right so do you have any example um, I, I you know there's a lot of play between sweet and savory in oh. like in, in Japanese cooking, you know, sugar or sweet is used as a as sort of an right. element in a lot of savory food. Yeah, we say sashisiso, like sugar and uh, uh, soy sauce. Right, exactly. Right, and it, and that sort of balance and that 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 balance is is really important, and I think it's very interesting. I, I think there's always there's always an opportunity to to present something that's just completely umami and savory and, and through and through. Mm. But a lot of times I like to, and, and a lot of people identify with those flavors, but I like to twist it up. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that, that I do using fruit and meat, for instance, mm. because I feel like there's, there's a nice inter, you know, interplay between those two, uh, you know, components and, and, and their characteristics. So, right. you know, the savoriness and then the sweet acidity from fruit and things right. like that. I mean, there's so. a skiaki, for instance, that's yeah. like a sugar and exactly. soy based, and then there's a beef in it. And exactly. Yeah. So it's not, I mean, so, you know, like I do a, a, a flat iron steak with, with, with blackberries, for instance. Mm. Um, and it just sort of works. And, you know, and it's, you know, when you think about it, it's not too different from sukiyaki. Right. So, That's interesting. Yeah. Right. It's like kind of universal comfort food as well. Yeah. Right. Okay. But, you know, to you, what's the essence of Japanese cuisine? To me, the essence of Japanese cuisine is a, is a real respect for the product mm. and whatever it may be. And there's, there's people respect it because I think, especially in Japan, there's, there's, you know, people take so much pride in what they're producing, Mm. be it, you know, sake or soy sauce or their farmers and they're growing leeks, you know, there's just, it's not a joke. It's like generations. Yeah. I mean, they take so much pride in the product. And I think because of that, people recognize that there's like, these products are so valuable. We can't, we have to showcase them mm. and do justice to them right. and here in the united states i i think that's getting to be more of the case again mm. you know people are starting to really respect the products that they're buying and 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 the people that are producing them take so much pride and effort and time in preparing them or making them or growing them that that you mm. you really feel uh, an obligation to do that so i think japanese food is the 
the, the primary philosophy is really recognizing the importance of, of every ingredient mm. and, and trying to do justice to it. Right. So. Yeah, I think uh, that's perception. I have a perception like if you go to you know, Kaiseki restaurant, right. the food, one dish is a collaboration. They, the chefs don't think it's, it's my dish. Because it's kind of too arrogant to say it, right? And then they have they really rely on the relationships with the farmers, yeah, yeah. even often there's generations long relationships too. And when there's been so much care put into the product that that you're using, you, you, sometimes you don't really have to do a lot to it because it's just such a beautiful product. Right. You know, one of the times I went to Japan, I was able to go to some farms and I went to this one farm where they were growing grapes. Mm. And it was just amazing how they were growing grapes. You know, it was in this sort of tent, and then there was this big trellis that that was about probably six and a half feet high. Mm -hmm. So you had to sort of duck under this trellis, and all the grapes were hanging from it. And the, the... the farmers would go around with like these little little scissors, and they'd prune these 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 bunches into these like these like just stereotypically perfect grape clusters, right. you know. Yeah. Um, and and not only did they look beautiful, but they tasted amazing too. Right. But I just thought, man, and everyone had sort of like this 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 paper shroud over the top, so birds couldn't mm-hmm. pick at pick at them from above. Right. And but this was like for like literally like thousands of bunches of grapes mm-hmm. and and I, it just sort of struck me how much they they really take uh, produce seriously or just anything seriously and, mm. and and how much care they put into it so yeah I think uh, people tend to cut the corner right but then in Japanese mindset once you notice you have to do something with it right that's yeah. kind of obsessive sometimes it's too bad too much but <laughs> right <laughs> I mean it's it's our post-war mentality you know it's, it's just about like making as much as possible you know you know and you know, making as much food as possible, and 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 so we sort of lost a connection to mm-hmm. what actual food production was about, right. and and farming practices, and and like sustainable farming practices, not mm-hmm. just like depleting soil and then you know, and then throwing fer- right. fertilizer into it. You know, yeah, I think that's chemicals the, into it. Right, that's yeah. opinion leaders like you know, and Dan Barber to Michael Pollan. Those people really reminding us that we really have to go back. Before, you know, chemical company led farming right. practice. Yeah, our soil is like probably one of our greatest greatest resources in the country. So, mm. yeah. right. So, uh, so all of those things um, included. What's your plan from now? On? My plan is to continue working in this industry because I love it. Mm. You know, it's it's so dynamic and so multifaceted so you know there's people there's food there's creativity there's business there's everything it's just like all wrapped into one one um one job Mm. and i love it um you know for the company we are we're looking to grow and continue to grow and Mm. we have a lot of great people working for us and it's great to be able to grow with people that have been with you and to be able to give them opportunities right to grow with you so that's for me that's that's my plan mm, okay and you have the dna to be in this industry from your grandmother exactly right? yeah yeah <laughs> i gotta i gotta follow it through so. <laughs> okay so good luck with the many projects that you're working on right now thank you and for the future so uh, and thank you for joining us today craig all right listeners so if you'd like to know more about craig's uh, cooking 
and the projects, please go to qualitybranded.com. And if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for guests or topics of the show, please contact us at, her- at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or akikokatema.com. And Japanese is live at 3 p.m. on Monday, so always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, and Stitcher's podcasts. And please go to iTunes and Stitcher and write a review. I really appreciate your feedback. And today's show was made possible by Worldwide Soba. And our engineer is David Tessiore. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.